Welcome to Gold Mind Neurodiversity Training, the coaching podcast, a podcast for coaches, therapists, and mentors interested in all things neurodiversity. Hosted by Katie Friedman and me, Lynn Tapper. Hello. So today we're going to talk about uh, the myth busting around empathy and neurodiversity. So maybe the first place to start, Lynn, is with some myths around empathy and neurodivergent people. Okay, well, I actually think that some of the myths are to do around, certainly when it comes to autism, are to do with the idea that autistic people are not interested in affection, maybe not interested in social engagement. And I think this can really hold people back from seeking diagnosis, either for themselves or for their children. And this was certainly true for me, because I believe these myths to be true um, back, well, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. They were definitely myths I was holding on to. I thought that autistic children uh, were not able to show affection. And then 2001, I had my son who demonstrated quite a few traits um, of autism from a very early age. But I didn't think he could possibly be autistic because he would be really affectionate. He was quite cuddly. Um, He would often kiss me a lot um, in all kinds of places. Um, And he was also really interested in um, engaging socially with me and interacting with me. Mm. And I just thought he couldn't be autistic. And I had several years of swinging from thinking he was autistic to he couldn't be because he had all of these behaviours that I didn't think fitted the profile. Um, And it wasn't really until years later, as I started to read more about uh, the experience of autism from actually autistic people, that I realised that so much of what I have believed was actually myth. It wasn't true. Mm. Mm. I think I, I also relate to that. That was a thing in the way of my diagnosis. Um, I was trying to be a coach. I was a coach. <laughs> and yet I was worried that if I was this, then I couldn't possibly be a coach because how could you be a coach because you couldn't be empathetic? Which, you know... I, so embarrassed to even say that now it's Mm. so ridiculous and I guess the other thing is that um you know it's almost quite the opposite Mm. actually there is so much I have so much empathy and particularly in a one-to-one environment it's it's um I often get called a very empathetic warm coach um so let's talk about when because, you know, what we don't want to do is pretend that this has come from nowhere. Where does this myth come from? Do you have any sort of examples of, of growing, of, of, of kind of, I was going to say growing your son, raising <laughs> your son, um, where you did get frustrated? Because I certainly know I do mm. with, uh, like with all three of mine, but um, certainly the one who's autistic, um, sometimes I do... Um, it can feel unfeeling yes. in the moment yeah. at times. Yes, and I have experienced moments like that with my son um, over the years. But one incident stands out where I was I, at the time was really shocked, 
at what I thought was his lack of feeling and understanding towards what was going on in the situation. So we were at a park after school um, and I was there with my four children who were, um, I don't know, all age 10 and under at the time. And um, my at the time, my son was talking to me about um, the galaxy. He was really, really fascinated about space. And he was talking at length to me about all sorts of complicated things to do with stars and planets, what have you. Um, and while he was talking to me, I realised that I'd actually lost my four-year-old son. <laughs> I couldn't see where he was in the park. So obviously that was quite worrying. And also about two seconds after I'd realised I'd lost him, I saw his twin sister, my youngest daughter, fall and could see that there was a lot of blood and I didn't know what happened to her. And obviously I knew I had to get over and deal with that. And all the way through this time, my son did not pause for breath. He, his, <laughs> he just ploughed on mm -hmm. about the galaxy. And I remember just being shocked that he couldn't register what was happening in the situation and, and realised that this was no longer an appropriate time for him to keep on his in talking about his special interests mm -hmm. and I was frustrated and in the end I had to literally say stop talking to me mm -hmm. I can't listen right now yeah. and once he realized what was going on yeah he got involved he helped he found his brother actually so he was really really helpful yeah and and that that's interesting actually because your what well, you your expected behaviour for him would have been to drop everything, realise the crisis, mm. be, be flexible and pivot in the moment and, you know, get with the programme. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I, ex I expected him to behave as his older sister would have done. Right. <laughs> Which would have been to have sensed a change in my state, to yeah. have realised that my face looked quite stressed, to have picked up on my body language that... I, something had gone wrong and I needed to take action now yeah. but he missed all of that okay okay it's, it's interesting because I'm thinking about um, uh, a very similar incident which also had kind of repercussions about being um, kind of intently listening to my son um, but given that I am neurodivergent and he is too this is a, an NDND moment so <laughs> I'm in the car trying to reverse in a very tight dead end and um, heavily pregnant with my next son um, and he's talking and talking at me at length um, very intently and I was I'm trying to do two things at once I'm trying to reverse which has probably got all kinds of dyspraxic uh, <laughs> implications not my strength going backwards um, uh, but clearly something I can do I've passed my test I promise <laughs> but but actually you know it wasn't around people pleasing but I could not seem to my brain couldn't pivot and break the concentration I had with my son mm -hmm. listening to my son because clearly the most important thing was I need to just let me just do this first and then I'll listen to you mm -hmm. that would have been a really it's like a high executive function thing to do to pivot in the moment and say that um, but clearly I just I, I wasn't able to do that so I was trying to hold on to far too many things mm. and as a result did reverse incredibly slowly into two or three cars uh, one of which got quite a scratch and ended up having to get out the car and give them a note and my insurance was affected 
But when I did, I sort of thought, what have I done? You know, how did that even happen? Mm. You know, never happened before. I've been driving a while. Um, and it did incur judgment. Uh, I happened to have a, an audience of a man <laughs> watching me do it. And I, I, <laughs> I was heavily pregnant. It was about nine months at the time. So um, uh, he probably, you know, took away some of his judgment at that point. But I do wonder about it, that hyper-focus. Yeah, and when one is in hyper focus, so with your son, with space, and with me listening to my son uh, and him intensely focusing on the conversation, um, things can go awry. Um, and I guess another um, example of this, which is more around judgment and behaviour, mm-hmm. I was doing exercise. Uh, very important to me, someone with ADHD, to get my energy out and to feel calm. In fact, that's often the only way to do it. Um, and I'm halfway through this exercise programme and my mum comes down from the north. Um, she's been in the car for five hours with her partner and they, they turn up. And I fling open the door and go, I'll be with you in a second, but I'm just going to finish my exercise, which in neurotypical land is incredibly rude. Uh, she told me <laughs> uh, later. Um, and, uh, but, but I now know that that was me in hyper-focus. It was probably also a wisdom. If you, if you let me finish this, I'll be a better person for you afterwards yes. and not frustrated and not able to self-manage and self-regulate. Um, and so, but that judgment was, you're selfish, you're unable to empathise with us and the fact that we've mm. turned up. You're task-focused and all the people around you are, have fallen off mm. your radar. Mm. And so all kinds of things can happen there which aren't actually true. Yeah. And when I got that feedback, because my mother doesn't hold back sometimes, I actually thought, I'm not, well, I must be. Mm. I don't think I am. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but I must be. Mm. And that's what makes me, me upset now, thinking about the people I coach who often get that sort of feedback. And they don't have time to pause and advocate for themselves yes. when they get given that kind of feedback. Or they don't have the framework of neurodiversity to understand. We're not talking about empathy, we're talking about concentration. Definitely. And I think that's why sometimes... it events are misinterpreted because actually when I reflect back now on that playground incident I think that was exactly it I don't think it was my son being selfish I think he was just very very focused on this one topic which was he was enjoying it so much and he didn't want to shift focus because that's where he was um and yet it could easily be seen as being selfish, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was just intense focus and a difficulty to pivot in the moment. But once the moment was pointed out to him, no trouble at all mm. joining in and actually taking the action that he needed to take to find his brother. Mm. Mm. And so it's funny, isn't it? We're talking about neurodivergent people's ability to empathise and how that's been turned into this kind of myth that they're not empathetic. Mm. And yet, actually, this comes... It derives from uh, misinterpretation and judgement, mm. often by the neurotypicals. 
Definitely. The irony. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And I think, you know, there's definitely been occasions where I've tried to do something which I think will be a really lovely treat for my son, but actually it's been a spontaneous thing that I've thought would be a treat, but actually it's just thrown him off his routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I think is going to be a lovely thing actually increases the level of stress he's under because I've thrown him off a routine mm. that's worked really well for him mm-hmm. and I've just made his day more complicated than it needed to be mm. um, and that's those times happen because I don't put myself in his shoes mm. and see things from his perspective mm. and it's not always for the people around the neurodivergent person to be able to second guess etc and I guess that's where some of our coaching of neurodivergent people, that's a part that coaching can play, which is to help um, a person to learn what their needs are, figure them out, mm. often with this new framework around neurodiversity. And then how do they self-advocate mm. uh, cleanly? Because the other thing I often get from neurotypicals is, well, it's still really annoying. that behavior is still really annoying and it's like okay so how do you move forward Mm. and actually I think that the kind of need for apology is less relevant than the need for a way forward yes and so you know if you said to me you know Katie I, I actually when you do this it makes me feel this there's no arguing with that you own your feelings and I have to take that on. It doesn't matter if the reason I'm doing it is because I'm neurodivergent. But then I need to say, okay, I don't want you to feel like that. You know, that would, I'm a massive people pleaser. Sadly, that comes with being ADHD. But, um, but, I, but I would also then need to think, well, what are my needs? Because I'm not actually selfish. I'm not actually lacking in empathy. I do go into hyperfocus, and sometimes that means very task-driven, mm. you know, white, I cut out white noise, which we all know that you can use that to great effect, and sometimes to not so great effect. Yeah. Um, but I think that being able to, to be honest and open is tricky, isn't it? Definitely, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's also, I think, sometimes just having... Have not being offended if you, as a person, are the white noise. Because <laughs> you might be the white noise to someone who's in hyper-focus. Yes. Yes. And the other thing I'm thinking, though, as well, is um, that we, we were just basically talking about clean language. You know, my, these are my feelings. This is how it makes me feel. And I'm wondering who would find that more difficult, the neurodivergent or the neurotypical? <laughs> It probably really depends on who that neurodivergent person is and who the neurotypical person is. That's true. That's definitely something I think everyone needs to get better at. Yeah. Owning their feelings. Owning their feelings and also being able to say what they need and if what they need is to not be disturbed. Yes. When they're in hyper-focus, it's, it's really important to work out how to boundary so that you can get the gold that happens when you hyper-focus. Yes, 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 and understanding how do I get the best out of me, mm. how will you get the best out of me, mm. and, you know, and what my needs are in order mm. to get that. 
I'm not going to get the best out of you if I, if I try and get you off track onto a different topic when you're hyper-focusing on developing content or yes. in the middle of a project. Yes. Well, you make me do my tax return. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely not to get the best of me. That might be true for everyone. To be <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. And so there's, there's also something about timing, isn't there? Which is, it, you know, I, I think there's sometimes with neurodivergence, neurotypical people tend to make judgments not say anything, not give feedback, and then, um, you know, all, all kinds of unspoken things happen, mm. and no one's being clean, mm. and that's really unfortunate. Yeah. And actually, I think it's really important to be honest and open if neurodivergent behaviour is upsetting you in some way, in a way that you can feedback clearly. Mm. And just thinking about... Um, you know, bringing up children. Yeah. When do you do that feedback and, you know, how do you navigate that line of what's worth feeding back about and also when do you do that feedback? I think, well, I think you definitely don't do it when emotions are heightened. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we know people can't think well when they've gone into fight flight, when their, their stress levels have gone too high. Yeah. That's definitely not the time. But I think, I think just letting it go and not trying to explain to a child the effect their behaviour has had on other people, you've, you've missed a moment mm. of, of really good parental guidance if you, if you never give the feedback. Mm. But doing it in a way that's kind and doing it in a way that isn't shaming and doing it in a way that says, I understand that your brain works differently and that you were really focusing in on one thing, mm-hmm. and that meant you missed some other things. Mm. Um, I think you just got to do it in a way that makes it easy for your child to not feel crushed. Yes, yeah. Yes, and sometimes when you're all neurodivergent, <laughs> there are fireworks. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, I think that, that the idea of... Um, bothering to do the feedback and not just writing it off and, and is really important. Mm. Yeah. So we've gone through quite a few things there around judgment, behaviour and this myth of, of empathy. Um, and I guess that the, there's a real lens shift when we change empathy to thinking about concentration, which I think is quite relevant not only to ADHD but also to autism Mm. okay thanks then thanks Katie (laughs) and if anyone would like to find out more about neurodiversity and is working as a coach or a mentor or a therapist do visit our website which is www.goldmindneurodiversity.com and you can find out more about the courses we offer bye bye